really high. So for those who don't know, welcome to Bible and Banter. My wife told me that when we play music, apparently it's legal if we say we don't own the rights to that music. So hey, oh. here to that potentially possible truism. Uh, if there is truth to it, we don't own the rights mm-hmm. to that music. But it is a tremendous song. Luke and I both love that song. But I played it for a specific reason. Why is it, Luke? Well, I was I was holding up nine. I can never figure out how to do this in the camera. <laughs> I hold up nine fingers because today Lindsay and I have been married for nine years. Nine years. God bless you, man. That is wonderful. We've also been married for nine years. We'll celebrate our tenth year anniversary in October. Wow. Okay, that'll be a big deal. We'll have. I'll have to find a song for you that day. You do. You do. I think so. So, so nine years, man. And I think your wife showed like a little video on Facebook. You know, like one of those picture videos or whatever. Beautiful. It was a beautiful. Yeah. Touch. Well, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you. I was. Uh, I was thinking today, uh, and like sent her a little message. And I'm always. I've always been sort of. I, on the one hand, I'm. I've, I'm a very feeling person. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, I'm kind of over analytical about maybe love notes where I don't want to write things that aren't true. So like you're the best thing that ever happened to me. And then I'll think, well, I'm not the best thing. You're one of the best things. So that doesn't sound as good. But I was <laughs> but I was thinking this morning and I and I wrote down, you know, one of those sort of sappy phrases, I can't imagine my life without you. And I was sitting there thinking, this is so true. Because I, because I think early on in, in our marriage, I loved her, but I, because I was still so young and in some ways learning commitment, I could sometimes imagine it. Like, well, if I'd made different choices, if I ended up here, I think about it now. And not only can I not imagine it, I don't want to. I don't want to know what life would have been like if I had, if God hadn't given me her. I Boom. just look at the life, the life we've built and I think, I don't want anything else. Boom. God has been gracious towards towards you both, I'm sure. Well, congratulations. Happy anniversary to you and to Lindsay. Uh, everybody, if you're watching, there's only three of you so far. Probably because you heard the music, you're like, not again. I'm not dealing with this. My wife was so embarrassed. I got home on Tuesday, and she said, please never dance again. Like, not just <laughs> not, like in public, never dance again, ever. Um, well, well, I've I've got some news for you, Eric. When you get home tonight, she is going to ask you never to sing again. Uh, well, that's tough because I sing literally all the time. Like every <laughs> time, I'll be home and I'll just sing random things. Like I will make songs up in my head, and I just I have no idea where they go. I'm like Michael Scott. I just start talking and have no idea what's gonna what I'm gonna say. You you write uh, you write random songs at home. Like I just I just cut like I riff, man. Like I just go like. Uh, I, I write uh, I write random songs at home. Like I'll just I'll just start singing. I'll just I'm like Robin, you are the most beautiful woman I know. And I'll just say say things like that. So I've Sorry. got I have certain like melodies that I'll recall. So there's one that we do all the time, and whenever me and the kids are doing something fun, I just insert a different word into the same song. So if they want to. They want to have a tickle party. I'll sing, it's a Copeland tickle party. And then if they want to have a pillow fight, it's a Copeland pillow party. And so that's a song that it recurs very often in our home with various phrases interjected in the middle. Wow. We, 
I feel like we're literally the same person. <laughs> I, I also feel like it's quite likely that the three viewers we had have now logged off, so we can just say anything. <laughs> we can literally say anything we want at this point. So, um, so Luke, hey, I just want to I want to plug this before we get into. We got a lot to get into. Lots yeah. of questions. We want people to engage uh, in what we're talking about because there should be a lot of questions. Uh, what we're going to share. For some, if you've never heard it, you're going to go, oh my, what? You're gonna, you are going to be shocked if you've never heard it before. But we hope that as we explain it, shock will turn to joy as we help reveal how true the New Testament truly is. And and really the, the issues that come up validate the the validity, <laughs> validate the validity. Affirm. Uh, affirm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm not a wordsmith. Um <laughs> But, you, you, you literally speak for a living. I, I do. Uh, I'm not very good at it though. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. Hey, we just we shared this last the, uh, this past show on Tuesday that um, hey we we are big affirmers of of missions. Our Luke's heartbeat, my heartbeat is to see the gospel proclaimed um, here locally, as far and as well as abroad. So what we're doing is we are asking people to donate to Penny Crusade. Penny Crusade is the missions arm of our denomination or, or the fundraising um, aspect of our missions arm in our denomination. So go to pennycrusade.com. You can give there. Uh, you can also go to my website, ericbreynolds.com. And if you purchase my book, all proceeds in the month of August will go to Penny Crusade. Yes. Penny Crusade, the only crusade approved by Bible and banter. And yep. if you have the objection of what about the Billy Graham Crusades, please forward those questions to ericbreynolds at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, sure. Because that's not going to go to me. <laughs> um, no, it's not. It's not. Oh, oh, I, I, I blew the joke. I ruined the joke. Um, so uh, the, the Billy Graham Crusades are, are fine or were fine. I guess they're not fine now because they're not happening. But you know what I mean. Um, so... Uh, anything else funny that we want to get into before before we dive into? I, I feel I feel like this show we're gonna be pretty pretty strapped for time, so let's go ahead and dig in. Okay, um, so Luke, tell me how the New Testament is not uh, not reliable. Oh, it's not reliable. The, the New Testament is incredibly reliable. However, uh, I think the question is, how did we receive it? Because mm -hmm. If we believe in the inspiration of in scripture, which uh, we do, which we do, well, you and I do, yep. and, and if you at home do, if you don't, then reconsider, I urge you. Um, but if, if you believe in that, what does that actually mean, right? Does it mean that the original writings of Peter, Paul, Isaiah, those biblical authors were infallibly inspired? Um, or does it mean that your English translation 2,000 years later is infallible, perfect, in the same way that that was? Um, and if the answer is no, can we trust it? And if the answer is yes, then that raises all sorts of issues of, well, what about new information? And here's uh, here it is in a nutshell, and we're going to get into all this. Mm. God inspired his word and he preserved it and passed it on to future Christian generations through imperfect means, namely copying. And we have what we have today. We have translations 
of copies of copies of copies. Um, what's amazing is every time we find older manuscripts, so at one point, the oldest we had was 500 AD. Then we found some from 400, then 300. Now we're into the somewhere, scholar, scholars argue, but they all agree somewhere in the 100. So within 200 years of the life of Christ, every time we find older manuscripts, they confirm what the church has taught and what we read in the New Testament for 2000 years. They confirm yeah. it. Also, there are along the way little corrections that we can make where we find small errors in the work of the copyists. Um, mm -hmm. Because what we find is that while the New Testament was incredibly reliably copied, it wasn't perfectly copied. There was a letter here, a misspelling there, um, little, not big, but little additions and subtractions that are very understandable if you know anything about copying practices of the time. And so if you pick up, for example, an NIV Bible, uh, from 1984, and then you pick up one from the 2000s, uh, you'll notice some different, well, maybe NIV is a better example. Yeah, 1984 is way better than the 2011. Oh, how, how about, how about the, uh, um, the ESV? If you pick up an ESV from 20 years ago and an ESV now, you'll find little differences here and there where they've studied older and older manuscripts and found just here and there slight differences uh, and, and then the scholars say, okay, well, that was that was probably an error made somewhere in the copying, and here's our little correction. And 99.9% .9 of these little differences, which scholars call textual variants, are completely insignificant. They're a word here, they're a letter there. They do not change in any way, shape, or form the meaning of the uh, of those parts of the New Testament, with three notable exceptions. And those are what we're going to talk about today yeah i think you're overplaying how recently uh they they've noticed these very you know um you know the the variants and whatnot these most of these variants have been known for quite some time a lot longer than 20 years ago well, and like to the esv like when the esv gets an update um it, it's largely because the language of of contemporary folks changes um, or, or the the translation oversight committee, the TOC, looks at what they have and go, this could be rendered a little bit better to be more accurate. It's true that we've had these textual variants for a long time, but that that scholarship it doesn't happen overnight. And so I I am aware of at least a few places where things that we're not discovering new manuscripts, but uh, some of the readings have changed slightly because as scholars continue to study these things, they come to slightly different conclusions. But Eric is right that most of these textual variants have been known. I would say probably like 1950 with the Dead Sea Scrolls is, was been the biggest repository. Yeah, that's been the biggest find yeah. re in recent memory. Um, we have, and we mentioned this on the podcast, on the show on, on Tuesday. So we had, I mentioned, I think it was like 56 or 5,800 um, manuscripts. I, I stand corrected. OK, um, this doesn't happen often because I'm usually right about everything, but uh, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, but I was wrong. So we have, though, that that's speaking to the Greek manuscripts. So we have uh, I'm looking at my notes. We have five thousand six hundred and eighty six Greek manuscripts. I pulled that from Karm.org um, and we have nineteen thousand copies in Aramaic, Coptic and um there's a third language. I forgot mm -hmm. which one. Uh, no. 
We're talking about the New Testament. So um, there are three other languages in which we have 19,000 copies of the original manuscript. So what does that mean? Well, we want to show you Luke um, shared that there is a diagram out there that helps us see how things are transmitted. Right. So um, I'm just going to share this on my screen real quickly. So I, I hope you guys can see that. Um, they can't, but just um, they, they can at least see the chart. So just tell them what's in all the boxes. Yeah. So if you um, look at these boxes you have here, you should be able to see my pointer. So right here you have the original autograph, right? So we're just the the one who created this put uh, uses the term the son of God, right? So this is the original autograph. This means this is the pen to paper, um, pen to scroll type uh, type deal. So we have the original autograph and then we have two people copy it. So they make copies of that because they don't have the Gutenberg press, right? So they have to handwrite the copies, which is incredibly challenging. So you see in the, we'll call this the second generation. So you have the first generation manuscript, the original autograph, then you have the second generation. And then you have a third generation, a fourth, and then a fifth generation. Okay. So in the second generation, everything's the same. It still says the only son of God. All right. And then you get to the third generation and you have this one over here in red. So we've gone from two, from one manuscript to two, from two to five. And out of those five, one of them omits a single word, that word being only. So it says the son of God, while the other four say the only son of God. Well, from that manuscript, we see that the copyist copies. And now all of a sudden we have two more copies that say the son of God. And then it, and then it goes down. That's what's called a textual variance. That is the majority of variances in which we find when we're talking about the New Testament manuscripts. That's the majority. It's stuff where a single word is, is left off, but we can trace it all the way back to this family. Um, and that's the vast majority. It's usually a comma that's missing or, or uh, like instead of cat, it says cats. You know, something like that. So it, so it, it, there's simple errors, things that happen just because you're copying and you're looking, you're copying, you're looking, and you just, you know, you, you make a mistake. Mistakes happen when you're copying things. Yeah. It's just, you can copy your own writings and they, and you'll, you will make mistakes. Um, and the, so, the, stunning, the stunning thing about this is not that there were mistakes made. It's how uncommon they were. Right. I mean, the they the 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 copyists because they believed they were copying scripture they were so meticulous i mean if you if you compare these copies to copies of other various uh, ancient manuscripts the accuracy is the first time you hear the fact that there might be errors in the sense that okay we have these textual variants where we have different copies with different readings it can feel stunning because it feels at first like the rugs being pulled out from under you well mm -hmm. well we we don't know anything the scriptures say which is what um very dishonest and atheistic scholars like Bart Ehrman, who I mentioned in the last episode, will say. They'll try to say because they're textual variants, we can't know anything that it says. The actual reality is that the accuracy of these copies is stunning. It's right. stunning. And given the number of years, the number of copies, and just the number of words in the New Testament, the reliability and the, the other thing is the similarity. So we have, I mentioned last uh, show that we have not just old copies, but multiple strands. You have multiple families from different parts of the world. And so you could have a copying tradition 
in Byzantine and the copying tradition in Alexandria that are completely separate and independent from each other for hundreds of years. And yet we compare them today and they are remarkably similar. Yeah. So we shared this on Tuesday. They're 99.5% of everything in the New Testament mm-hmm. is there's no mistake, like no, no missing letter here, no missing comma or anything like that. It is exactly the same. We're talking about half of a percent. Mm-hmm. So we're talking 0.5. Now to break that down so that you can, so that we can better understand it. Um, if it, there are 400, about 400,000 variances. Mm-hmm. Okay. 400,000 sounds like a lot, Luke, like that sounds like a ton, but when we really break it down, it's really as though there's like two variances when you put two, two manuscripts together. Yeah. So when you put two manuscripts together and put them side by side and look and go through the entire New Testament, you would see only two variances mm-hmm. that would amount, in essence, to, for the most part, a missing comma. Yeah. Now, we are going to talk about the three things. Now, this is where we're going to talk about the stuff that no one wants to talk about, but you need to hear it because uh, people who are hostile to the Christian faith or mm-hmm. who are non-believers and want to win you out of the faith um, they will use these and and they will use these as an example. And if you've if they're the first person to tell you, they're gonna be you're gonna be shocked. But we as pastors love you, care for you, and want you to know how reliable the scriptures truly are. So we're gonna yeah. talk about the three biggest challenges to the New Testament's reliability and then share with you how they're really not a challenge at all. Yeah. And real quick, before we get into those challenges, I want to give one example of of, of a much smaller version. Uh, which is often a, people attempt to, who, who, who are enemies of the gospel and of, of, of the authority of scripture, will attempt to make a mountain out of this molehill. So um, one, of the, one of the variants that uh, scholars like Bart Aaron will point to, and one of the, I forget which book it is, it might be Luke, one of the, the stories of the healings of Jesus, there is a textual variant for a word that could mean either anger or compassion. So it's either that Jesus was angry with the man or he had compassion for him. Now, obviously, that is a significant difference in that those mean two very different things. But Eric, let me ask you a question. Um, And you don't even need to look at the passage to answer this question. Which Christian doctrine would those different uh, words change in, in, in the faith? Which doctrine would that completely transform, turn upside down? Uh, inside out what 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 would that change in terms of what we teach as a church from scripture if jesus was angry versus compassionate and if in that one healing if for a moment he was angry with the man even maybe for his lack of faith rather than having compassion on him in that one instance i don't think it would change anything luke C- correct it is absolute, and i'm not saying the the difference doesn't matter we want to know what was originally there but these are the kinds of um variants that are often raised and they're worth talking about because we want to know what the authors originally wrote. But if you actually look at it in terms of the impact upon Christian teaching, according to scripture, no impact, zero, none. Yeah. Now let's talk about some of the bigger ones. Okay. So um, let's go through this. I get a list. This is the one time I actually have notes, Luke. Do you have notes? Not right in front of me, but I was wow. looking. Oof, oof. I'm incredibly disappointed in you, Luke. But I was looking at this stuff. I prepared properly. All right. So we're going to look at 1 John 5, 7. Then we're going to look at Mark 
16, 9 through 20, which is really going to be my favorite one. And then woman, uh, the woman caught in adultery, which is John 7, 5, 53, or excuse me, John 53 to 8, 11, um, which I actually preached on, which you gave me a hard time about on Tuesday. So First John 5, 7 says this. Okay, we're going from the ESV. The ESV says, for there are three that testify. The New King James Version, which comes from the same um, uh, translation as the King James Version, the same manuscripts. So we see a difference because, because the ESV and the New King James or the King James come from two different sets of manuscripts. So New King James says, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Now, um, for those who are uh, Trinitarian, which I think all of us are, except for maybe a couple of people, um, first off, if you are a non-Trinitarian, um, Luke, you tracking so far, if someone is a non-Trinitarian and they use either the King James version or the new King James version, then they're fooling themselves. <laughs> um, because this is quite like, if, if you look at first John five seventeen, right, you look at that and go, well, I don't believe in the Trinity, but I do believe that God only inspired the King James version. And then you look at that and go. What do I do? <laughs> yeah, it's, true. It's, it's very difficult to be a King James onlyist and a non-Trinitarian. But they're they exist. <laughs> they they totally exist. So their, their uh, tradi tradition will find its way around any text. Oh my goodness. So um so that's important for us to understand. All right. So the 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 reason the ESV, I think the ESV is correct, right? So here's the problem, right? There's less than 10 manuscripts that include it. So we have over 19, we have over 19,000. We have about 25,000 manuscripts. Less than 10 include the longer portion of that verse, Luke. Isn't that insane? I, I mean, it's definitely, it, it should catch our attention. Right. Um, it doesn't appear until, guess what century? I think this one, wasn't like ninth or 10th? The 10th century. It didn't start. It, it, so when someone says, well, if we lose the second half of first John five seventeen, then what we're doing is uh, because this is, this is very common. There's a conspiracy theory theory out there um, that Richard's actually talked about because he's heard this conversation, right? So the Jesuits for some reason wanted to corrupt the, the Bible. So they started taking things out of there. And this is one of those verses that they cite. So they take out the second half of, of this verse to 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 rip away the trinity but here's the thing if the trinity was found like consensus in the church doctrine was settled in 325 like year 325 you know when the 10th century was that's the 900s so 600 years later you're saying there's this conspiracy it's settled doctrine that does not make sense Right. Yeah. So you have to look at the evidence. We want the Bible to speak. It's God's word. And we're looking at the evidence as to what it is. So the, many people would say, well, you're trying to take away from the scriptures. Absolutely not. We're trying not to add to the scriptures. Adding uh, to the scriptures is at, is just as damning as taking away from the scriptures. But, but Eric, this is where we do have to have a, a bit of a brief discussion on what actually is the nature of scripture. Because I think you and I assume and agree it's what the authors originally wrote. 
Um, ooh, Victor dropping some knowledge. It appeared much later than the 10th century. Okay. So well, not according to my sources, Bickford. Uh, what? Here's the deal. Whether it's 600 or 700 or 800, it was well after Nicaea. Uh, yes. At least six. How about at least 600 years? Yes. Here's the deal. Um, you and I agree that scripture is what the authors originally wrote. It is not uncommon. And I'm finding more, it's more common than I thought. It is not uncommon for people to treat scripture as something else. That it's what was passed down to us in this English version in my hands. And I don't know many Kings, King James onlyists, but I think a little bit of that sort of view of scripture does bleed in because we we do and rightly we eric and i both say the english bible in your hand is the word of god yes we both, we both say that without it's reliable without caveat or qualification also the english bible in your hand can I, I would say it contains the infallible word of god it is not infallible in the same way that those autographs were it is incredibly reliable but it, i i don't i don't cling to every word and phrase in the in in the same way that uh, uh -oh. like a King James onlyist would. Now if I here's it well let me finish Luke you if you're going full Aurora College on us. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <clears throat> let me finish. If I have un let me, let me be clear. If yeah because I, right now you're about as clear as mud. I, if I, I have if I have reason, here's my point. If I have if I have reason, scholarly reason from study of manuscripts to question a word or phrase, it's okay to do that. I'm not saying that I'm reading it and constantly thinking, well, this maybe this should be there or it shouldn't. No. The the point that the point you keep making is that it's incredibly reliable. However, here's why I'm saying this. First John 5 7. If the second half of that verse was not originally there, it does absolutely nothing to challenge the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. No, because but also it, it is important to state that the, the the scriptures that we have today are not they don't just contain the word of god okay because that that's actually a very specific terminology that if you go back i would encourage uh luke if you have not read this shame on you um but bob mayer's adventism confronts modernity yeah and he goes over the fight for the bible within our own denomination and and that was a very common um i was going yeah, to say I, here let me let me call uh, let me qualify my statement because I you're right, Eric, that some people who use that phrase, they end up using it to basically muddy all water and yes. say nothing is. So and that, I think that's what you've done. I think that's what you've done. In what well, let, let, me, let me clarify. When I say that, what I mean is this, and I've heard it described to us this way. Um, the New Testament is a thousand piece puzzle for which we have a thousand and ten pieces. Right. Nothing. Nothing. It, it is not likely that anything from the from those original manuscripts is missing what is more like and this is what a lot of people misunderstand most textual variants are not subtractions they're additions they're they're little they're little things here and there whether it's an error or some of the things we're going to talk about that may not necessarily have been there in the first place which means we have the whole puzzle there are a few places here and there right where there might be a phrase or a word or we're going to talk about a couple of passages that weren't and when that's the case, and here, here's where I, I I think you're getting tripped up on my language, but I think you and I actually generally agree on this point, which is 
Well, your la- your language your language is is a replica of a fight that we had back in I think the fifties or sixties, um, with our denomination, mm-hmm. where there were where there were legitimately two sides. Either the Bible contained the Word of God, or it was the Word of God, and it seems like you're saying they contained the Word of God, okay, which okay. is which is the liberal, uh, that is the liberal position. Okay, I I, I see what you mean. Um, I I'm gonna correct I'm gonna correct what I said, because you're right, that lang- that language has a lot of connotation that I don't, that I don't agree with. The Bible, the English Bible in your hand is the word of God. And as we're going to be discussing today, there may be a few that 0.5% here and there that might not have been there originally. And the only point I was making, Eric, is that you and I agree that what we want is what was originally written, yes. not what, not necessarily what has been passed down today. Well, great I, thing is, what, I, I can I, I can you say this, Luke? Can you, before we move on, because I think we're, we're talking about things that we never intended to talk to, or talk about, and I think what it's doing is it's muddying the point of the conversation that we're okay, trying to have. Okay. So I think we need to simply say, do you believe that what we have, it, it, like I, I'm holding, I'm holding my Bible right here, right? Yeah. Do you have a hundred percent confidence in what I have in my hands as the infallible, inerrant? word of god yes okay no you don't need to qualify no there's an important qualification with oh my goodness what about to discuss how can you say that the thing that you just said that you don't think first john 5 7 that the second half was originally there well it's also it's the, well the second half's not in in, in the esv because i go that's <laughs> that's why i think that's why i think if you want the most literal translation i think the nasb is a great version um the second best is the esv and if you want to go with the texas receptus go with the king james version in the new king james version but it's to me i find more confidence in the esv i mean let me ask let me just ask you this plainly do you think the second half of first john five seven is the infallible word of god i i don't i think that it's true doctrine i I, think i I think it was a later addition um and for i think essentially the the copyist is copying it and goes this makes for a great it's more like a commentary on that passage Yes, exactly. That's what I believe. Yeah, so and I, and I, I believe and I, the doctrine is infallible itself, but those yeah. few words are not. Exactly. So it's I can, because it was a later edition. It wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. Right. So I can say that the English Bible I'm holding today is the word of God. And this is the only point I'm trying to make, which is what we're actually talking about today. And I can say there may be a few very small sections that might not be. okay okay look you give me heartburn man you seem you seem you seem very nervous to just say directly what i already know you you think so right let's let's move on to these three aspects okay. right? let's, okay. let, these three points okay so because i think that i think this helps flesh everything else out agree right? yeah um another important part about john five seventeen is that no single church father quoted that those particular words despite their arguments for the Trinity. So for the first 300 years, there was a great argument, a debate going back and forth between the early church fathers over the Trinity. And we can actually reconstruct, excuse me, most of the New Testament, because if you read the early church fathers, they just about quote every single part of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So 
they were they were entrenched in the word of god they knew the word of god that's how we can know that the new testament was passed along between so many people it was widespread it was held as the word of god at that time it just wasn't finalized until 325 right. so for the, those first couple hundred years they're quoting it vociferously and um what what we don't see quoted is potentially that one verse, if you went with the, the King James Version or the New King James Version, which would be the nail, final nail in the coffin to say, of course of course, God's a trinity. Like, like there's no question about it when you look at that. So that that is an important aspect or, or, or uh, for us to, to understand when, when looking at that text. Uh, hold on. I got to part ways with Mark for a minute here. Um, Mark, I would say that 1 Corinthians 7.12 is the infallibly inspired record of Paul's opinion. And I, have, I don't think there's any reason for us to say that his greetings were any less infallibly inspired than the rest of the letter. So this is where I do part ways, um, Eric, with maybe some of this camp, is I'm not interested in trying to pick and choose just anything that I, I, I take, take issue with. It it's really is a question of what was originally there. If Paul's opinion in 1 Corinthians 7.12, and if his greetings were in the original letters, then they are scripture in the same way that everything else is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to engage on this aspect at this point. We, maybe that's a, a, a part of another show, another episode. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't mean to blindside you. I didn't know that my language was going to be... Um, um, yeah. we, can, we can keep moving. Let, let's say one more thing about 1 John 5.7. Okay. So there are people, the people who would say that if that, that verse isn't there, the Bible doesn't teach Trinity, don't understand the biblical defense of Trinity. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't rise and fall on a single verse. Right, exactly. And so that, that, here's the deal. The second half of 1 John 5, 7. Mm -hmm. five, seven yeah. um, oh, so maybe, maybe Mark and I are a little bit closer than I thought. Um, the, the second half of 1 John 5, 7 is true it, in, in that biblically that is the doc in fact the doctrine um so it's not harmful there's just a question of was it there in the original writing that's all now do we want to get into the big ones yeah yeah so five seven pretty simple pretty straightforward um it's also important to note hey before we move on mm -hmm. erasmus who assembled the the greek uh, uh the Greek compilation of, of all the manuscripts um, at that time and created like a Greek edition. Um, Erasmus's edition, which was created in the 1500s, I believe, um, did not originally include the second half of 5-7 of First John yeah. 5. And um, it actually, people were upset about it. And um, once he added that second half of the, the verse, sales shot through the roof. <laughs> so that people it was very important to people it, it just shows when we talk about these things people are more attached to their emotions than facts but as your favorite person ben shapiro says what if what if facts not care about luke uh my feelings yes there's one more i'm really glad you brought up erasmus because there's another important point to make here which is that this practice of of what we call textual criticism shouldn't be scary because it's not new it's not, it's not like some liberal scholars just showed up 50 years ago and started messing with the Bible, although that happened. But this practice of, of textual criticism has been part of the church's study of the Bible since, since the beginning of the church. I mean, in, um, in the 300s, Origen, who's got some theology, there's some questionable theology, but a very, yeah, I would say. 
but a very rigorous biblical scholar. Um, he actually produced, hand-copied, by the way, the Hexapla, which was a side-by-side of six different versions of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And did this so that you could compare the various manuscript traditions. And this was in the 300s. So this isn't some newfangled sort of thing. That like This is actually something that Christians have been doing for a long time because we care about this, the word of God. We want to know what was written in, uh, in those letters, in those histories. And we have it incredibly reliably recorded and passed down. But it's not a, it's not a new practice. True. Absolutely. All right. Mark, so a lot, what's commonly referred to as the long ending of Mark. Yeah. Uh, if you, you probably have it in your Bible actually, um, but it's in brackets. So even the, the more modern translations that go with the um, older text, the older manuscripts, the most reliable manuscripts, um, they include this in the translation, although they put brackets in there saying this is not in the earliest and best manuscripts. That's, pretty much a quote from my esv so um the long ending to mark um let me let me turn there in my bible just so i just so i can share with the people really the only doctrine that it affects um so this is maybe one of the more challenging ones for you uh because it it actually does um influence one particular doctrine um so one, it, it is not found in the earliest and best manuscripts. That's one. Um, two, some scholars believe that the book of Mark ended abruptly. This is why we think the long ending is there. Uh, this is what many scholars believe, that the book of Mark ended so abruptly that the early copyists took information from Acts and other places in the Gospels and to create an ending for Mark because it seemed like it just ended so they thought it was best to create an ending. Yeah. Um, do you want to know which doctrine it changes, Luke? Snake handling? Yes, that is it. <laughs> uh, so so if you are a snake handler, um, you probably use the King James Version. Probably. Um, now, I, I would just say this, too. In, in the same way that the second half of – and this is, this is where we begin to really see the emperor's clothes – or rather lack of clothes when it comes to these, these secular arguments against reliability. So um, 1 John 5, 7, okay, that, that's a verse. It's still more than a word or a phrase, but it's just a verse, and it confirms and is confirmed by Scripture. Mm-hmm. Even this passage in Mark, I would even say, and, and it's funny because I don't, I, I don't consider those verses Scripture be, because I, I think it wasn't there in the original. I, don't, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Right? Um, so nevertheless, I have exegeted it, and I would say that the people who even interpret this as, as a, for, the, for the practice of snake handling have misunderstood what was even intended by whoever wrote it, because it seems to me this is just a reference to the story in the book of Acts about what happened to Paul on the island of Patmos. Mm. So, so even, in, even in this case, I don't know of any Christian doctrine that this would possibly affect. And I would say that the words there confirm and are confirmed by scripture. Yeah. Well, as Mark Winger, who I took some of the arguments from today, um, would say, may, some people will argue for, on the basis of Mark, then that if you don't include the long ending, then you're missing out on the resurrection. The resurrection is never proclaimed. That apparently is an argument that people have made to him. But let, let me read this to you. This, this is not part of the long ending. 
This is mm-hmm. part of the short ending, the actual Bible. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Shalom, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and there were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Wait, it's there. That's how insane some of the arguments um, are for some of these aspects. And well, and the conspiracy theory that the Jesuits are just, you know, they're trying to undermine the scriptures and for some reason interject. And I've heard this before, too. Richard may have included it in what he was sharing before, mm-hmm. is that, um, well, the reason the Jesuits uh, changed scripture was to introduce homosexuality as an acceptable practice. If you read the long ending to Mark, there's nothing in there <laughs> about heterosexuality, homosexuality, or anything like this. Nothing has changed. Um, the only thing that was changed is that something was added. Right, right. But this is so um, Nancy brings up, and I'm glad she brought it up because this is actually one that we missed. I forgot about this one. Um, Matthew chapter 18, verse 11. And it's, it's exactly the same kind of thing where in the earliest manuscripts to, to, we can find, that verse is not present. So it's possible that that verse was added. And Nancy, I want to push back. Okay, Matthew 18, 11 is important. Um, if, if it was originally there, of course it's important. If it wasn't, no, it's not. Because that, that phrase, for the Son of Man came to save that which was lost, that is not the only place in Scripture that we find this. Mm-hmm. Exactly, Bickford. It's actually present in another book. And, and so that one, exactly the same thing, no effect upon Christian doctrine. And it, it does not contradict anything that we have in the scriptures. It confirms and is confirmed by them. Um, the question is, and, and you, you're making, you made the key point here, Eric. So sometimes when we do this kind of scholarship, people will accuse us of subtracting from the word of God. What um, the book of Revelation actually says is no one should take away from or add to these words. And that's actually the whole point is we don't want to take anything away from the word of God. And we don't want to accept what anyone else has added. Right. And that's how we can be so confident in what we have in our hands mm-hmm. is because we, we have the knowledge. So if you don't, so if you don't have the knowledge of, of how we got the scriptures mm-hmm. and, and why we have the scriptures, how, mm-hmm. you know, how we have the canonicity, um, how things were canonized. If you don't have that knowledge, then it's almost like you got, uh, you got the tools, but you don't know how to use them. Yes. yes. You know, you got, you got the hammer, but you're trying to use it like a wrench. I mean, it yeah. just, it's not going to work. Um, and it can be useful in some situations, right? You can, yeah. you got a wrench and, uh, or you got, you know, you, you might be able to bang stuff with a wrench and you might be able to bang stuff out with a hammer that you might want to use a wrench for. Um, sure. So it is useful, but when you have all this other knowledge, it can give you a greater confidence yeah. uh, in, in your reading and in, in your study in everything that we're talking about. It, it, I think it is um, it is beneficial for us to mm-hmm. read it, to study it, and to exegete it, even if um, portions of it were later or were added later, because mm-hmm. they do affirm other doctrines. So, yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, it, I put it in the same category as, for example, the Didache. The uh, the, the Didache, doctrine- why don't we use the Didache? I think we should be oh, using the Didache. I'll, I'll the Didache any any other man is the earliest Christian manuscript we have. I'll, I'll tell you what else. I read something for the first time 
uh, was it was it the letter from Clement or what's the shortest of of those the, the, the letters of the Apostolic Fathers? I don't know. Either Clement or the other guy. Um, Eric, it was one of the best extra biblical sort resources I've ever read, mm -hmm. and I was like, why have I never read this? Well, okay. it's it's like. To me, I find it beneficial to read things like that, like the Didache, that aren't trying to be the Bible, right? They're not right. trying to be, they're not adding to the scriptures, but like the Didache is simply the, it displays the process and how they catechized um, new believers. And mm -hmm. you know how they actually catechized people for two years, from the moment in which they professed faith to the moment they baptized for yeah. two years. Um, it's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. One of the cool things about the Didache, too, we don't want to get too far off, but I'll just mention this. Where these writings can be very beneficial, even if they're not, we don't elevate them to the level of Scripture, and we shouldn't. Um, a great example is in the Didache, it says, baptize in running water if you can. So they say it's even it's so cool to see even in the first century, they these leaders of the church were trying to recognize that circumstances are sometimes going to affect practice so they go okay if you can baptize in a river or a stream then do that but if you don't have one available you should still baptize people yeah i yeah. i wonder why i i wonder why they made that like what makes running water special oh I, i'm sure it had something to do with the fact uh the reference to the living water okay there's there's some understanding that 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 means water that's moving that's uh, that living water means water that's moving because it doesn't become yeah. yeah that makes sense all right so well, on to, well, on to the mean, next one yeah yeah you're right we need to keep going um and this is probably going to be the most controversial one because this is one of the most beloved stories in the book of john yeah and let's uh let's say this almost every scholar believes it's a historical account and that it's accurate mm -hmm. so this is a real story most everybody agrees i agree it seems like it is a completely real story it's just not scripture and right. that is the woman caught in adultery found in the end of John or the end of uh, John seven, the beginning of John eight. So that's John seven uh, 53 to John eight eleven. 11. Um, <clears throat> this is the famous story. I preached on it. Um, mm -hmm. I shared that on Tuesday, but I, I made it very clear to my congregation. And I did have someone like come to me the, the following week and was like, pastor, I had never heard that before. And this, that it really bothers me that you shared this with the congregation. It was, it was somewhat controversial. Um, but you know, at least for that person, but I expressed to him, Hey, I love you and you need to know the truth, you know? And, and like, I can't, what do you want me to do? I'm not going to preach this. I'm not going to preach it as though it's scripture and it mm -hmm. not be scripture. Right. Um, and, and I'm not just going to skip over it. And then there's just a bunch of questions. Right. Why did we skip yeah. over it? So this is the story of the woman caught in adultery. She's dragged in the middle of this big circle. She's about to get stoned, like not high, but like stoned with stones, um, like rocks thrown at her. Yeah. And uh, Jesus, you know, famously writes, writes in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. Uh, and then also he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, mm -hmm. it was important when I exegeted that when I shared that passage, Jesus is not saying you have to be perfect. <laughs> He's mm -hmm. saying, essentially, you all are guilty of this same sin because you, it's all, it's entrapment. You set her up to be caught in adultery. For her to be caught in adultery literally means she was caught in the act. So she was in the middle of, of um, you know, exchanging pleasantries. Which, uh, which raises the question, where is the man? But that's a conversation for another Right. Day. And it's a huge problem. Why is the man not about to get stoned? Mm -hmm. Um 
So, I, think, I think it's because it was a Pharisee, but there's no evidence of that. <laughs> okay, so um, and you and I agree. This is a this is a his, this really happened. We believe it really happened. It's a real event, but it's not scripture. It right. is not found in the earliest and best manuscripts. Um, it it wasn't found. Luke, this is insane. This is insane. It the first appearance was in a a single manuscript from my study. Uh, in the 10th century, but it wasn't included in the Bible fully until the 14th century. So that's the 1300s. So yeah. no one, no one really um, looked at this as scripture or included it in the canon until the 1300s. Right. Um, and then it appears in various places where it does show up. It shows up all over the Gospel of John. So it shows up in random places and it even shows up in Luke. Also, if you look at the text and you read it in the original languages, I don't, I have to rely on the scholars, but what the really smart people with, with big thick glasses tell me is that, the, is that the language um, is actually more, it's closer to Luke than it is to John, as far as the writing style is concerned. Um, but what, most people think is that due to oral tradition, this story has been passed down through the centuries and it made its way into the scriptures. So there you have it. The, the woman caught in adultery absolutely happened, but it's, it's not inspired by the Holy spirit. Or, or maybe it was, but not in the same way that the scriptures were. Okay. It doesn't belong in that category. And I would add this. In the book of John, later on, it says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suspect the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So there were things Jesus did and said that are not recorded in the scriptures. Yes. I'm actually yeah. preaching I'm preaching on that this Sunday. The purpose okay. of John's gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so much that we don't know about Jesus' life because it wasn't recorded. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't meant to be. So, so this story, likely true likely happened in the life of jesus it just doesn't belong in, in and here's here's where we don't i i want to pull back some of the language i used earlier because i'm seeing where it's problematic and i want to clarify what i was trying to say earlier eric the people who had the bible a hundred years ago could honestly and truly say they had the word of god we now know there were a few sections that didn't belong there. Not huge swaths of scripture, not anything with any theological significance that now that it's gone, we don't believe certain things, just little sections here and there. It is possible, right, that a hundred years from now, we're going to find something even older than we have now. And there may be little sections here or there that we have to remove. We will, we are able, nevertheless, we are able to say today, we have the word of God, they'll be able to. And the, the one point I want to make is you guys might notice that almost all of these are subtractions do you do you notice that almost and almost none of these significant textual variants that it's additions which tells us even when we had a few things that shouldn't have been there a few little things we always had the whole thing there were just little things here and there that weren't originally there which is very different than saying we don't know if we have the whole thing we do know we have the whole thing we've just right. found through manuscript tradition a couple little places, not significant, but here and there, of stuff that didn't belong there. I'm going to borrow an illustration from Mark Winger, um, who, is it Mark or Mike? Mike. 
Mike, Mike Winger. See, I keep calling Shane Anderson. What was I called? No, I called Steven Anderson, Shane Anderson. So I'm calling Mike Mark. So uh, I actually stumbled upon this guy because you can go check out a recent article on adventchristianvoices.com. Mm-hmm. Um, Devin nicely uh, put out a great article, which it just yeah. so happens like he and like we keep covering the same stuff. Um, I think he reads our minds. I don't know. Yeah. Or, we- your, or your mind because you often come up with the ideas for the show. So there's that and, and read Devin's article it's fantastic phenomenal um and and he focuses on the on the woman caught in adultery uh but he also mentions the other two that we mentioned today the other the other two um problem passages but he he has a link to a video which is just work like if you don't read the article go watch the video and i think Devin will probably say the same thing um the, the video is great but he uses this illustration because if you're listening you might go golly like this really calls into question like my confidence in the scriptures first mm-hmm. off the reason we're telling you this is because we're we want you to know that you can be completely confident you should be even more confident why mm-hmm. he uses this illustration if you owned a a fleet of trucks let's say you own i don't know twenty five thousand fleets of trucks because that's the equivalent to the manuscripts that we have mm-hmm. you owe you you have twenty five thousand trucks and on those twenty five thousand trucks you found you have an inspector come through you pay him um, very well and he inspects every single vehicle to make sure it's in good working order. Mm-hmm. And then he finds three trucks or he finds, excuse me, one truck with three flat tires. Mm-hmm. If you're the business owner, do you start flipping out and go like, all the tires are flat. Mm-hmm. Cancel all the shipping. We mm-hmm. can't ship anymore. We're going to be shut down for years because of these flat tires. No. You, you look at the inspector and go, thank you for finding the three flat tires. I now know, and it's in one truck, my other 24,999 trucks, I can go and send and do whatever they do. I'm just going to change the three flat tires, right? That's it. You're just going to do the maintenance. We have, we have contracted people with very thick glasses that like to, to play Dungeons and Dragons. Um, these the nerds of the nerds that love textual criticism that get into it like they they make Bigford look like a cool guy. All right, that's hey, uh, is a cool guy. He is a cool guy. I'm just I like to mess with uh, with Nathaniel, but they uh, like they are a great gift to us in the church. Yeah. But they have thoroughly inspected the fleet of trucks and said, "Hey, we have a couple of issues. They're not really big issues." Um, they're not really issues at all because it doesn't contradict anything. It doesn't, it doesn't make it so that we can't proclaim the gospel or can't have confidence in the word. If anything, we should have greater confidence because everything has been gone through with a fine tooth comb. And it's even better the greater our technology gets because you can put these manuscripts over top of one another. You can get so much more thorough. It's kind of like this. It's easier to put a sermon together now than it was 200 years ago because you can just pull up Logos Bible software. Yeah. Um, and you can you can do this and get, you can get all your commentaries you can get the original languages you can get your encyclopedia you can get all the stuff that you need right mm-hmm. um spurgeon wasn't doing that uh calvin wasn't doing that um arminius he probably you know he probably didn't even uh he didn't even prepare easy. sermons easy so, we love our arminian brothers uh, so uh, um you know joking aside you we, should yeah. you should have the utmost confidence and when someone's like christian guess what let me tell you about how you can't be confident in the scriptures there's so many errors no 
don't be stupid. All right. Cause listen, <laughs> I, I listened to Bible and banter. Um, Luke and Eric told me how confident I can be because they did the research based on other people's research that did it on other people's research. And guess what? These guys killed it. They absolutely killed it. They crushed the task. They glorified the Lord in their study. And so that we can walk around with this Bible right here and go, this is the word of God right here. It doesn't contain the word of God. It is the word of God, Luke. It absolutely is. It is all divinely inspired. It is inerrant. It's without error. It is infallible, meaning there's no untruth in here. Yes, agreed. Uh, And there's one more question to ask, which is, why does this matter, right? This, this seems so technical. It's so I'm just I'm just a regular person. I don't know these languages. Like, why should this matter to me? Here's why it should matter. If if you will wrestle with this stuff, let's say in 20 years they may, and I I I don't expect it to happen, but it could. Let's say they make another incredible archaeological find that's even older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we find there's like a word or a phrase here that is now in question that's not going to shake your view of the scriptures nope it's it's oh you know in fact you'll be able to rejoice yes rejoice in these discoveries you say oh man we already had it but now it's even better it's even it's even closer it's even so you can rejoice in those things if on the other hand um you take the particular whether it's kjv or anything else english translation you have in front of you and you say this is the word of God. Therefore, if anyone messes with the word, because maybe we find out that that word wasn't there in the original, um, I can't let them do that or else the word of God is crumbling. Well, no, it, it turns out that that scholarship actually edifies the body because it brings us nearer to those original manuscripts, which are what we believe are scripture anyways. Mm-hmm. So we can rejoice in these things instead of being afraid of them. That's why it matters to know this stuff. Have no fear, young man. Have no fear because you have the word of God. That's right. Let me say one more thing before we go. And this is one of the things I appreciate about you, Eric, is that you're not afraid to challenge me. I think and I, I had not considered the way that some of the language I choose echoes scholars and theologians with whom i fundamentally disagree so i'm going to rethink i'm going to rethink some of that language yo have you have you have you read the book i've not read it may listen i'm I'm, uh i I don't think bob uh dr robert mayer he is the head librarian over at gordon conwell um he used to work in the communications department i believe at acgc our denominational office um i there are a number of things I, I probably disagree with him on his book. And first off, he, he loves the scriptures, believes that he believes what I do about the scriptures. Um, his book about how, how Adventism confronts modernity and at mm-hmm. the heart of it is the, the battle for the Bible, mm-hmm. so to speak, and, and what we believe the Bible is. Yeah. Um, that's why I really push back against the idea that it contains the word of God. It either is the word of God. If it contains the word of God, then our doctrines crumble because if it just contains the word of God, then you have to parse through which parts are the word of God, which parts are not. Um, All right. Help, help me clarify something then. I, I don't want to argue with you. I want to make sure I understand you. You agree that 
so you seem to agree that, and it, by the way, if you disagree with us on this, that's okay. We're still your brothers. Um, and you still have the scriptures just as much as we do. Okay. Uh, God has protected his word. But you seem to agree, Eric, that the long ending of Mark and the, the story of the adulterous woman, while there's nothing wrong with them, should not be considered scripture in the way that everything else does, right? That's, that's the view that you take. I was going to say that again. I wasn't paying attention. I was reading Mark's comment. Because yeah. I'm actually particularly interested in Mark's perspective because he um, works at Aurora College. Yes. Um, so, but maybe, maybe publicly, he, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to get anyone in trouble based on what they're, right. what they're pursuing. Because so, so, anyway, yeah. Go so ahead. You, you would say, well, I don't put words in your mouth. Would you say that while there's nothing wrong with the long ending of Mark or the story of the adulterous woman, would you say that we should, in, in the light of the information we now have, we should no longer consider those sections scripture the way we consider everything else in the Bible? Um, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't. Let me rephrase. Uh, do you consider, don't, don't tell me what you think others should do. Do you consider those, those sections scripture? Or let's just do the most, the one that you seem to have the strongest feelings about. Long ending of Mark. Do you consider that scripture in the same way that you do everything else in the book of Mark? I don't believe either three to be scripture, but I believe them to be true. Good. Now. Does your recognizing that that long ending of Mark was not originally there, has that caused any doctrine to crumble? Um, handling of snakes. <laughs> I used to love handling snakes, man. I would, I would go around, I'd find all the copperheads, and I'd be like, bite me, bite me, bite me. Right. And, um, you know, so, so, uh, my only point is this. I'm going to reconsider some of the language I use. The only point that I was trying to make was that acknowledging that those few sections might might not necessarily have been there does not require you to swallow the nonsense of 20th century much of 20th century textual criticism especially in the spirit of you know the bard Aaron's of the world who say because there are textual variants and a few questionable passages all all is is thrown to the wind i've watched That's a couple of videos of bart Ehrman. he's only about an hour and a half from where i am you know, mm -hmm. currently, because he's at uh, North Carolina, UNC, mm -hmm. um, Tar Heel country. Um, I, and I was reading a little bit more about him this morning in, in light of our conversation that we're going to have today. Um, he's he, he's a self-avowed agnostic or atheist. I forget, I forget which one. I don't know what he calls himself, but he's an atheist. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't – this is what I don't understand, and it really it really just shows how liberal – the university of North Carolina is mm -hmm. that they, the, the chair of their religion department is an atheist. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense. The chairman of the religion department is an atheist. Eric, it makes all the sense in the world when you understand that religion is just the product of, of, of society. Cultural con con constructs, yeah, right? Cultural Societal constructs. constructs. Well, it's also the, the religion that is being pushed on, um, uh, on public universities, public schools, in our government, and all across the place. Listen, I'm not a crazy conspiracy theorist, okay? I'm really not. Mm -hmm. um, but the agenda and the religion of today's world and America is atheism. That's mm -hmm. the, that is the worldview in which they're coming from. Mm -hmm. So 
uh, yeah, I guess it's not all that surprising that a very popular and well-respected university, the yeah. University of North Carolina, would have as the chairperson of the of the Department of Religion would be an atheist. It's it's like the it's like if the chairperson of the English department, what's the greatest English department in the United States? I don't know. Uh, that doesn't matter. That's not going to be apples to apples. But let's just say it's a respected university. Notre Dame is a respected university. Notre Dame's English department head is someone who only speaks Russian. They don't even speak English. But for somehow, somehow they've studied English. They can't really speak English. They don't believe in English as like a language that should be spoken. They just, they, they just have read a lot of books um, about English. Um, they once spoke it on occasion but then they were convicted that no english is is just a terrible language i'm never going to speak it but i will be the department head and everybody else is going to have to be to speak russian or i'll speak another language that is such a good analogy it might be the best one you've ever made on this show it is so so here's a couple of things right nobody asks my opinion on school uh you know i i remember learning in seminary right i remember i had a seminary teacher say you know you need to keep up with different schools and stuff like that because people are going to ask your opinion of where they should send their kid to school now maybe it's only because i'm 32 years old that people are like what does he know about colleges and universities right like i'm not going to ask my 32 year old pastor Mm -hmm. um where i should send my 18 year old for school but if they do ask i'm and i have said this before there are a few prominent schools around us that I tell people don't can, don't send your kids to if you are thinking they want if you want them to get a biblical education. Mm-hmm. Okay, one of them, North Carolina, they mm-hmm. might have a religion department, but their religion is atheism. <laughs> so, so if you're sending their, them there to learn the Bible, don't do it. Okay, yeah. it's not a Christian school. It, it is it is a great place to learn medicine. Uh, a great oh, a great. Yeah. Place to learn. Uh, poetry. I mean, there's lots of great things you can study there. Got a good basketball program. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a great school in other ways, but uh, a, a little bit suspicious in regards to their study of religion. Yeah. yeah. The other one is Campbell University, which is like a beloved university around here because it's only like 20 minutes, away, 20 or 30 minutes away. Um, it was at one time, and it still puts itself forward as a as a Christian university. But when I had when I had church members tell me, "Oh yeah, like I just graduated a couple of years ago," and all my professors were telling me how um, Jonathan and David were homosexual lovers together, I was like, "What kind of what? <laughs> what do you what?" That and is, people actually go there for ministry training. So that, be careful where you're sending your kids to school. That is one of my favorite nonsensical liberal theories in scripture because the exact same David repents in sackcloth and ashes for violating the Ten Commandments, you know, the, the commandments of murder and adultery. But apparently he didn't read Leviticus. <laughs> he didn't repent of the supposed homosexuality. Um, <laughs> I, but I guess if you're a liberal theologian and a liberal scholar, you're going to go, well, of course, because homosexuality is not wrong. So, you know, why would he repent of that? Duke is liberal too. Yep. Amen. No, look, look here, here's, here's the reality. Um, and instead of picking on particular schools, the, sim- the simple reality is that we live in a culture where uh, any sense of objective truth or morality is, is not, has not only been rejected, it has been anathematized. That if you make any sort of a claim to, and this is this is why the reliability of the scriptures matters so much, because yep. we, if we're going to tell you 
that the, this is the sole, sole, the, the sole rule for Christian faith and practice. We better be able to say that we can know with confidence what it actually says. Utmost confidence. Yes. You know how confident I am in the word of God? Dude, I used this illustration this past Sunday. All right. Um, I, and I, I was talking about Michael Jordan. So, you know, everybody, everybody here in North Carolina loves Michael Jordan, especially where I am because Michael Jordan grew up in, I think Wilmington or Greenville or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Which was only an hour, hour and a half away. Um, And uh, so I used, I used this, right. So Michael Jordan, when Michael Jordan was on, like, and you, he had this little twinkle in his eye. He didn't miss a shot, man. He didn't miss a pass. Like you knew if he passed the ball, that guy would score. And if that guy, if that guy didn't score, like he'd get that stink eye for the rest of the game and wasn't getting the ball again. Like when Michael Jordan was on, greatest basketball player of all time. Like hands down. Hands yeah, down. Well, hands down the second greatest for sure. Are you trying to make me cuss? Continue. What's wrong with you, man? Second Go on. Of all time. <sighs> greatest basketball player of all time. Now I forgot my illustration, man. <laughs> you were you were talking about when you were talking about when LeBron James is in the zone. Go on. No, LeBron James is a namby pamby. He soft man. He's so <laughs> soft. He's about as soft as a pillow. Uh, so, um, what am I, was it? So the greatest moment in Michael Jordan's career. All right. Some people would say, you know. He had that shot in, I think it was 97. He crossed up uh, Brian Russell kind of, you know, there was kind of a bit of a push off. He shoots that J and it just, there's that shot of Brian Russell kind of just looking up and going, no. And Michael Jordan's like, yeah, that's in baby. That's in. Right. Some people think it's that moment. I think it's the moment in which um, he and a bunch of kind and gentle characters overtook an alien race um that stole the 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 abilities of the rest of of the nba in space jam that is the crowning achievement of michael jordan's basketball career was beating uh was being part of the toon squad and meeting beating the mon the the mon stars right so when michael jordan was on you had the you knew to give him the ball there was Mm -hmm. no lack of confidence there was a hundred percent you just give them the ball and you knew exactly what was going to happen Mm. That's the kind of confidence I have in the word of God. Mm. That's good. The kind of confidence I had in Michael Jordan in 1993, four, when, when Space Jam came out. Man, Space Jam. Are you, I'm going, I'm going to try not to get off on a tangent here because that's like my whole childhood in one movie. Space Jam. Greatest movie of the 90s. Yeah. Forget um, Titanic. Titanic, boo. Yeah, Eric completely forgets the, look, um, I, Eric, Eric's analogy is great. I think the greatest moment of Michael Jordan's career was when he faced a young LeBron James in the Cavaliers and outscored LeBron James because that was the last time in basketball history that he will have outscored the greatest defensive player and the greatest player in the history of the game. Um, but I want to go what, to – Do you even watch basketball? Do you oh, even oh, like basketball? What is wrong with you? I want to go to Pama's comment because I think, I think she really ne- nicely and neatly balanced some of our – You make me sick, Luke. <laughs> Uh, some some of our uh, consternation against uh, uh, culture and, and uh, public institutions, which is completely deserved. But she makes the point, both of our sons attended public colleges, faced professors who believe very different from them, were thankful 
our prayers and early teaching protected them from being turned away. Um, yeah, look, I, I went to public school. I, I heard a whole bunch of things that were contrary to what I'd been taught, but the Lord and his sovereignty and his grace protected me. So we're not saying that you can't go to those places and have strong faith. No. Just don't go to them expecting a sound biblical. Just know what you get. No, yeah. no, like it, it's kind of, you know, I've said this before. My dislike of, of contemporary Christian music and, and, and like the stuff that's kind of supposed to be a replacement. It's almost like, you know, you hear of replacement theology, which is often, you know, they call it, they call covenant theology or replacement theology, which is a derogatory term for it. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like Christian folks have tried replacement culture, which is replacing everything that is that like in in secular culture with something that is Christian. So if there's rock music, replace it with Christian rock music. Um, if it's rap, replace it with Christian rap. Uh, if it's uh, movies, replace it with Christian movies. Right? Mm-hmm. That's just that's just what that's what we've built up here. Um, and my issue is that one, a lot of the times it's just not done very well. And by a lot of the time, I mean most of the time. Um, but also that a lot of things are marketed as Christian, but they're really not. Right? And I, and you even mentioned this when we, when we had a conversation yesterday in our in our pastoral theological reading group or whatever we call that thing and you had said like there's a jeremy camp song that essentially like de de seeks to delegitimize the atonement um <laughs> so uh you know we need to be careful hold on, hold on, hold on. it does it doesn't seek to do that it does it accidentally let's be clear yeah it absolutely but if you do it accidentally you still did it yeah, but you didn't. You didn't seek to do it. You know, let's let's give let's okay. not get promoted. I, I didn't mean it that way, but yeah, you're right. Okay, so um, it it's just bad. It's just yeah. really bad it theologically. Bad. Might be like I don't know Jeremy Camp from you know Camp Dixie, you know, or 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 what Blowing Rock Campground, whatever, yeah. right? Like Camp Camp here, Camp there, Jeremy Camp. I don't care, but um if you're writing music know what you're writing about don't be a dummy um so we're gonna make mistakes and then when you do make mistakes whether as a theologian or as an artist you 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 recant you you know uh you repent of it and and whatnot he obviously needs to do some repenting um as we all do from time to time but um you know when it's a christian school i expect them to be a christian school so if i want people to know whether it's folks who are watching this program folks in my church that uh, if you're going to send your kids for Christian education, make sure it is a Christian education and you're getting what you're paying for. Mm. One more, one more thing to say. Um, I think probably the worst thing that Michael Jordan did for his career was when he came back with the wizards um, because he reminded us of what his career was like before Dennis and Rodman, when he played after Dennis and Rodman. And we sort of saw what, what sort of success he could have without them. Um, in the same way, Eric, I am like Michael Jordan without Dennis and Rodman when I'm without my friend Eric Reynolds. Don't ever, don't ever say that blasphemy again. I'd rather listen to Jeremy Camp deconstruct the Christian faith than, <laughs> than hear you tell me how Michael Jordan, like making things up. This is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> what What's going to be really funny is my father's shame later when he hears this like this this is you know what we're hoping to have triennial next year i'm gonna try and bring a motion to the floor 
to anathematize Luke. Um, I'm going to try and get you kicked oh, out of the want... denomination. Why does it have to be personal? Why can't it be anathematize anyone who denies the supremacy of Michael? Why is it just me? There are others who feel this way. Like who? Uh, like anyone born after 1990 who watches basketball. Okay, well, sorry your childhood sucked. No, okay. Hey, I, I, grew, I grew up on Michael Jordan. I'm just not um, delusionally captivated by what was an amazing career to be. Do you know what do you, do you know why I dislike do you know why I dislike LeBron James? Oh, because because he's a whiny, soft, un, unattractive person. You said unattractive. What do I care what he what he looks like? Well, no, I'm, no, physically he's stunning. I'm just saying like there's nothing about him on the inside that's desirable. Well, you have pretty much the whole argument, my whole argument, right there. And yeah. Just because you're in, into, he has, he doesn't have the will to win. Mm-hmm. When things get tough, he 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 turtles, man. He 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 brings all of his, he brings all his head, his his limbs. He brings them all under his shell, and then starts blaming his teammates. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly what he saw in 2017 when he basically carried his team through the finals against the greatest basketball team ever assembled. Has he, has he has he matured? Has he matured? Yeah. Okay. He's matured. Michael Eric. Jordan. Michael Jordan. Listen, when Michael Jordan was on the court, this is when you're a competitor. Have you ever played sports before, Luke? Yes. Okay. When you play a game, the difference between someone who is competitive and isn't is like night and day. Michael Jordan would have put a dagger into his mother's heart to win the game mm-hmm. um now i'm not justifying murdering people on the court okay especially our mothers but i am saying we're, this we're looking at you ron artest <laughs> yeah ron artest probably uh, who knows how many people he's shamed I'm but, sorry, uh, sorry. Uh, um uh we're looking at you meta world peace yes that's right um so his competitiveness michael jordan's was to the point that he would he would kill if he had to kill someone on the court he would have done it like, I have no doubt. Well, I get to go to jail for the rest of my life? Eh, whatever. I care about the championship. He was a winner. Michael Jordan was a winner. It, it, always, it always entertains me when people um, acknowledge the reality that Michael Jordan was the greatest competitor we've ever seen in the sport and then assume that means that he was the best basketball player. So that – being the best basketball player isn't only about the talent. If you're asking who ha- who was the most physically gifted, dude, LeBron James, just his his uh, strength, his ability to be the size that he is, mm-hmm. and still have the speed and agility yeah. is is unfathomable. He is yeah. a freak. He is a modern day monster. Like he's, he legit. He is the. He's the only player in the history of the NBA who could start at any of the five positions on any team at any point in NBA history. Uh, you could make the case for Magic, um, but but point taken. Point taken. Um, uh, I don't think Magic could have could have been a, a. Go on. Magic played all five positions in one game. Yeah, well, he also played in a kind of weak era. But go on, continue. <laughs> anyway. Can, can we? So wait, do you think basketball today, the NBA, is better than it was 15 years ago? No, I think the athletes are better. 
Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll agree. Yeah, yeah I, for I sure. Sports better. Look, I liked it when you could shove people around. I think that's just called defense. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Look, I watch hockey and I watch a basketball game now and it's almost unwatchable. And basketball I hate watching LeBron or anyone else flop. I hate it. Okay. That's, that doesn't change the fact that he's the best basketball player we've ever seen. You are delusional. You're delusional. Uh, what, the people who are delusional are the ones who lived in the in, in the in the magical mu- era of Michael Jordan, and despite the fact that it's been 25 years now, can't move on. You can't move on. <laughs> I'm in the present. I like the player who's playing now. This is this is uh what do they call it? Recently, recency bias or or whatever the term is. You're just. I think. I think you could call it recency bias five years ago when people just said he's an amazing athlete and his accomplishments weren't what they are now. Now that he's breaking every record imaginable and like his, I don't know, 49th year in the league and he's as good now as he was when he was 25, I don't think you can say anymore that it's just recency bias. I think at some point, the weight of the evidence becomes too much to ignore. Yeah. And I'm with Palma. I can't stand and watch professional baseball or football or basketball anymore. It is, it is so painful. Hockey's where it's at hockey and soccer. Look, I hate watching baseball. I really hate the New York Yankees and I hate Alex Rodriguez. But I recognize his ability as a baseball player. You are talking about facts and feelings. You are allowing your feelings, which are legitimate, about this person to obstruct the fact that he's just superior in every way to the legend of a former time. Luke, I feel really bad how delusional you are. Like, everybody watching this is just so sad. I... You know, I'm getting text messages from people that that are watching the show right now and telling me that they are crying for you. They are grieving for <laughs> your soul. You know what? We had a really good discussion of uh, textual variants today, and I hope it was edifying. But I also hope that in the past 20 minutes, I've helped to crack just a little bit on, of the ice on the glacier that is the Michael Jordan delusion. He is the greatest competitor we've ever seen in the sport of basketball. I'll even accept the argument that he is the greatest simply because of his winning record, but he's not the best basketball player in the history of the game. And and, and by the time LeBron's career is over, it won't even be close. You're really running out of ways to be wrong. I will never run out of ways to be wrong. By the way, the most competitive athlete of all time has to be Tom Brady. The what? The most competitive athlete of all time has to be Tom Brady. Look, I'm I'm an I'm a Patriots guy. I'm a Brady guy. I I'm not so sure. There's three people in the conversation. There's three people in the conversation of most competitive. Okay. There's MJ, there is Tom Brady, and then there's Tiger Woods. I feel like you're leaving out some really important people like Napoleon Bonaparte and Al Capone. Talk about athletes, you <laughs> dumb dumb. 
I don't know that anyone was as competitive as Al Capone. I mean, <laughs> you talked about Michael Jordan being willing to kill people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, it was good talking. Hey, we do have some news. Next week, we start one episode a week. Yes. And it hurts my heart that we're doing it, but I'm the one who's requested it because as much as I love doing this with Eric and with you guys, uh, and I, I don't see this at all as wasted time. If anything, I've, I mean, even today, I, I, some of the things Eric put challenged me on, uh, I'm going to think about and grow and really appreciate this time, but I do have other responsibilities. And unfortunately for now, I think once a week is going to be more realistic, although there will be bonus shows. So bonus shows at least once a week with some other little treats sprinkled in. All right, Luke, it's been fun. It's been real. There have been times it's been real fun. Um, you know, I'm not so sure about the last 20 minutes. <clears throat> I have no regrets about the last 20 minutes, um, but I really have no regrets about the hour before that. When, look, we talked about something important that we shouldn't be afraid to talk about because it does, rather than undermining our confidence in the scriptures, it affirms it. Amen. All right, Luke, you have a great day. I hope the rest of the viewers and listeners will as well. So take care, guys. Remember, go to pennycrusade.com, give to Penny Crusade, um, or through Penny Crusade, give to our missions arms so that we can see the gospel proclaimed around the world. God bless you. Take care. See you next week.